If you turn with me to Luke chapter 23, Luke is an orderly eyewitness account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was a doctor, and so he had a particular eye for certain things. And as we're entering the Palm Sunday, Luke wants us to see who Jesus is. And he starts off from the beginning of Jesus' life all the way through to the culminative event, which is the cross and his resurrection. So let me read from uh, chapter 23. Jesus is now on the cross. And I'm going to read from verses 32 to 43. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him, which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And this is God's word. For the past four weeks, we've been looking at Lent because the Christian world, all over the world, are observing and preparing for the culminative events leading to the cross, leading to the gospel, leading to the resurrection. And so this is a particular Sunday. It's Palm Sunday because we're entering into the passion of Christ. When we talk about passion, we're not talking about his emotive passion. We're talking about his suffering. Jesus is suffering. And this is Palm Sunday. He enters in. It's the triumphal entry where they crown him. They say, Hosanna, he is the king of Israel. And then now, in this passage, Jesus is from there, in just one short week, now Jesus is hanging on a cross. The very people who brought him in, ushered him in, crowned him as king in some ways, are now mocking him and hurling insults at him. And so this is a passage, it's an amazing passage, and it focuses on what the death of Jesus actually means. It's a famous passage. It's a conversation. It's a conversation among three dying people, three dying men. Each of them are saying something. And what they say helps us to understand why Jesus came and why it's important for all of us. Why he came and why it's important for all of us. There are three points, very simple. This is about as simple as it gets. First dying man, the second dying man, the third dying man. The first dying man, the second dying man, the third dying man. The first dying man, we're going to learn why we don't get it, why we often miss Jesus and who he is and why he came. The second dying man, we're going to show how you actually can get it. And the third dying man is going to show us what you actually get if you don't miss it. The first dying man, if you look at verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. That's what he says. And uh, from the first dying man, we see why we don't get it, why it's so easy to miss who Jesus is. And there's two reasons. First, we're going to backtrack a little bit to the earlier part of this text. Uh, If you look at verse 35, the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. He said, he saved others. 
Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The rulers, these are the religious. The religious rulers are looking at Jesus and they're saying, if you're the Messiah, they're interested in the Messiah. They're interested in God's sent one, the one who's going to come and redeem them. He said, if you're that guy, get yourself down here. Save yourself. The next verse, 36, what do you see? The soldiers, these are the Romans, they came up. They also hurled insults. They also mocked him. And what did they say? If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. So here in this text, what do you see? On one hand, you have the religious, the religious rulers mocking him. On the other hand, you have the irreligious, the Romans, mocking him. For the first time, you have the religious and the irreligious, they actually agree on something. They're actually agreeing because they believe that the chosen one or the king would never suffer like this. God's chosen one, God's sent one, God's king would never suffer like this. No one ever believed that the Son of God, the Messiah, God's sent one, his king, would be weak. They didn't think to associate Jesus with weakness. God's king with weakness. And they kind of avoided or they overlooked Isaiah chapter 53, a famous, famous passage. It's a, it's a, it's a prophecy of the uh, suffering servant. And I'm just going to read briefly Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 to 5. Um, in this passage, what do you see? <clears throat> I'm just going to read here. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to, to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. No one ever conceived at that moment or believed that the Son of God, the Messiah, would be this suffering servant, that he would be weak. See, on one hand, the cross, it assumes a holiness. It assumes such a holiness of God that the irreligious, the secular, the liberals, they can't handle that. But on the other hand, the the cross assumes an inclusivity, a weakness, a humility of God that the religious, the rulers, they just absolutely cannot handle. And what what do we do? We often oscillate between religiosity and irreligiosity every day, don't we? We oscillate back and forth. And so as a result, it's easy to miss Jesus. It's easy to bypass who Jesus is, the truth of who he is. Now, the second reason... Um, and this kind of comes, it, it comes from the first, really. Jesus fails our test because he failed their test, the crowd, the test of the crowd. They hurled insults at him. They mocked him because he wasn't the type of guy that they were expecting. And Jesus fails our biggest test when we look for a savior as well. And that's why we often overlook him. Verse 39 again. Now we're coming back. Here's the criminal. What does he say? If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. In other words, what he's saying is, if you are the Christ, Get me out of this mess. I have needs. I need you to fulfill those needs. We've all done this before, right? If you are God, show me. If you show me, then I'll believe. Tend to my needs. 
Answer my prayers. If you get me out of my mess, now I'll believe you. If you help me to escape this mess, now I'll believe you. If you don't get me out of this mess, it's because you don't exist. If you don't help me, it's because you don't exist. I can't see a reason for my suffering, so I can't believe. Now, come on, is that really good logic? That if I don't see a good reason for my suffering, a good reason must not exist? Is that good logic? Is that good logic to say that I can't explain suffering? So a God that actually can explain it must not exist? Is that good logic? Remember Lazarus, John chapter 11? John chapter 11, you have Lazarus, and he's dying. He's a friend of Jesus, a good friend of Jesus, and he's sick. And Jesus tells his disciples, Lazarus is dying. Lazarus is sick. But he intentionally waits four days until Lazarus dies. In fact, the disciples couldn't understand. Well, I don't understand. Why are we waiting? And finally, Jesus says, okay, you know what? Our friend is dead. But he waits intentionally, and then they go over to see Lazarus. And by then, he's already in a tomb. And what happens? He's there. He says, take me to his tomb. And by the time he gets to the tomb, Martha and Mary, the brother, uh, the sisters of Lazarus, are so upset. They're disappointed. Both of them tell him, you know, if you were here, Lazarus would have lived. And so he says, take me to the tomb. And he gets to the tomb, and he's so moved by the cost of sin that he starts to weep. The shortest verse in the Bible, right? Jesus wept. And what's interesting, the people who are actually watching this whole thing take place, what do they say? You know, some people say, see, he's crying. See how he loved him? But other people say, you know, but if he really loved him, he would have been there for him. And if you know the rest of the passage, what happens? They roll away the tomb. Jesus calls out to Lazarus and says, come out. And there Lazarus rises from the dead and comes out. And commentators have said, you know, he specifically said, Lazarus, come out, because if he said, come out, all the tombs would have opened up and all the dead would have come out. You know, what is this passage saying? That as friend, you could see death. You could experience suffering. You could experience tremendous disappointment because prayers sometimes are not answered. But is it logical then to say, well, then God must not exist or he must not love me? Or God doesn't have power then to help me? Think about it. When you came to God, you know, or when you actually come to God today and say, you know, here's how I know you, you exist. Here's how I can believe you exist. You know, I have a view of how my life should be. And if you help me, then I know you're a God. You don't want God. You don't want God. You know what you want? You want an omnipotent butler. That's what you want. You want a, a divine Menu taker is what you want. You want an employee. Because a God that bends to your desires, every desire, is a God that would not be allowed to challenge those desires. That can't be. There's no God like that. That kind of God doesn't exist. That's why it's so easy to not get it. And because, you know, if you think about it, here's what the religious say at one point. They couldn't believe the irreligious, on the other hand, that's, they say the same thing. Jesus fails our test. That's why um, we often overlook him as Savior and our King. That's the first dying man. The second dying man, we see this in verses 40 to 41. <clears throat> and uh, the second dying man says what? Complete about face, right? He says, don't you fear God since you were under the same sentence? 
We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. That's verses 40 to 41. How can we actually get it? The only way that you can get it is to come to the most difficult truth to arrive at. In fact, the only way that you can actually come to this truth is if God is actually working your heart already. The second man, he sees the difference between God as a means to escape and God as the actual escape himself. Both men, think about it, both men on either side, same situation, same suffering. They're both dying. They're both in humiliation. They're both on the cross. They're both hanging there. They have the same felt pain. They have the same felt needs. They're both crying out. They're both in tremendous suffering. But one, he's just like the crowd. He's hurling insults at Jesus. And the other, completely transformed. How's that possible? Both are turning to God. But only one person has changed. And we all start out, what this text shows us, we all start out like one guy. We cross over through Christ to the other. We need to make a shift to the second person. What's the second man saying? The second man saying, well, the first man is saying, get me out of this mess. Save yourself and us. That's what he says. But the second guy, the second criminal says, he never asks to get out of the trouble. In fact, what he says is, this man did nothing wrong. I deserve this, but this man did nothing wrong. In other words, the first person says, I will be with you if you get me out of this mess. The second person says, I will stay with the mess if I can be with you. He sees who Jesus is. He sees the truth and the reality of who Jesus is. The first criminal, Jesus is the negotiable. The escape is the non-negotiable. The suffering, getting out of the suffering is the non-negotiable. The second criminal, the suffering was negotiable. Getting out of the mess was negotiable. Jesus became the non-negotiable. He says, remember me. Of all the things that he asked for, what does he say? Will you remember me? Remember me. The passage is saying, your God, right now, our functional God, is anything that we, we treat as our non-negotiable in life. Think about it. If money or power or sex or even some sort of addiction you know, if that's the center of what motivates you on a daily basis, if that's the thing that gets you up in the morning and gets, allows you to rest easy at night, if that's the thing that allows you to feel at peace, then that's your center. God has become the negotiable in our lives. Just like the first Steve, his non-negotiable was the escape. Get me out of this mess. God became the negotiable. But if you're actually starting to wake up, and some of us are waking up, then you can see beyond the current situation. And what do you see? When you look beyond the current situation, you see the condition. You see not just the condition of your suffering, you see your moral condition, where you actually stand and you actually see who God is. Countless times throughout Scripture, you see people in their condition, in all their complaining, they stop because all of a sudden they see who they are in light of God. The moral condition, their place. And you start to see a lot of anchors that are dragging you down. Things that are drowning you. Imagine yourself in a sea of storms because you're suffering, you're suffering. But these anchors are actually dragging you down. What are those anchors? We say, money's become my anchor, my job, my career, that relationship, that one relationship. I thought it was so freeing, but it's actually trapping me. It's actually dragging me into the water. And I'm barely keeping my, my neck above water here. I need salvation. I need help. Here's one way you can look at this. We have to stop praying for um, riches. You have to stop praying for riches. It, like if money or your career, your job is your sense of worth. You have to stop praying for that. What you need, if you actually see that as your anchor, what you actually need is you have to say, that's a negotiable in my life. I want to make that my negotiable. 
I want the Lord to be my king, which means that he is my non-negotiable in life. And if you actually see that, what you're praying for is, I'm praying for a deeper sense of worth that money cannot provide, a lasting sense of worth. Instead of praying to get that one particular relationship to work out in your life, it could be a family relationship, it could be a significant other, that's become an anchor. That's become an anchor, and what it does, it tends to drag you down. You start to drown spiritually because of that. Well, what you have to do, instead of praying for the relationship to work out, you have to pray for a love that you can experience, a security that you can experience that's lasting in your life. Something that doesn't drag you down, but actually is uplifting because it's glorifying. And you know it, and you sense it. See, um, if you don't do that, what's, what's going to happen is, even if you get these things, if you, even if you get that promotion, even if you, you, know, you work and you work and you work, you may work at that relationship, and it may work out for you. You may work and beat your children into submission, and it may work out for you for a little while. But the thing is, if it works out, it's going to drown you. It's going to come at your cost. You're going to lose yourself. And so praying for those particular things may not necessarily help, because in all those cases, Jesus is the negotiable, and you're going to miss him. The second thief, he does something that's only possible if God is actually working in your life. You know, if you think about it, he's not a typical thief. It says in other passages that he's a thief in other gospels. But he's a criminal. Here it says he's a criminal. Why? Because the Romans would not just crucify you if you were a thief, if you were, you know, a simple thief. This man was probably a revolutionary, some sort of a rebel. So the crime that he committed was actually against, is almost treason against the Roman government. He's a very, very particular person. So in many ways, he could have said, you know what? I'm dying as a martyr. I'm dying for my faith. I'm dying for my beliefs here. He could say, I'm justified in what I'm doing. In fact, most people who die for their causes, they always say that. That's what the first guy's saying. But this man says, wait a second. I deserve what I'm getting. This man did nothing wrong. We are being punished justly. We are getting what our sins, what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. It's an amazing admission. What he's saying is, Jesus is the innocent one here. I can sit there and defend myself. I can sit there and and try to prove myself even while I'm hanging here, but actually Jesus is the one that's innocent. I'm guilty. It's an amazing admission. And a lot of people say, you know, that's the reason why I have a problem with religion, because it always makes us put ourselves down. We always have to lower ourselves and make ourselves sinners. I hate that. You know, and it makes me feel bad about myself. No way. Religious people, that is not religion. This man is not being religious. Religious people would never try to put themselves down, not by their choice. The religious say, look what I've accomplished. Look at what I've done. Look at who I know here. Look at all the things that I've sacrificed. They wouldn't be crying out. You know what they'd be crying out? Save yourself and us. Save me because I deserve it. You owe it to me. That's religion. Religion is our way to use God as a means to get the things that we really want, the non-negotiables in our lives. That's religion. This man has come to something that only God can put in place in his heart. Both of these people, you know, the religious and the irreligious, trying to save themselves, both acting entitled, both act deserving, both act like they're in control of their lives until they lose their lives altogether. But this man is not religious. He's crossed over. He's made a shift in his life. He admits who Jesus is. He admits who he is. And he says in verse 42, remember me. He says, remember me. You know, the Bible uses the word remember in so many different facets, but it's very consistent. 
In fact, most of the Bible, when you ask the Lord to remember, it's usually, remember not my sin. You know, God calls us to remember in the Bible, and he always says, when you remember, I want you to remember who I am. I want you to remember the creator in your youth. But when we pray, we always say, will you please not remember my sin? And when this man is saying, Jesus, will you remember me? What is he saying? He's saying, you know who I am. You know why I'm here. I'm not, I can't hide from you, but I want to be with you. And you're the only, I want you. Will you take me in? Can I be accepted? Can I be acceptable? In other words, faith is not about how much you have. It's not about magnitude. It's about direction. You can have faith as small as a mustard seed, Jesus says, as long as it's in the right direction. That's how we get it. If the first man taught us how we miss it, it's because of the crowd, it's because of our own expectations of what Jesus is supposed to do in our lives. The second man teaches us how you actually get it. You have to come to some amazing truths about yourself and about who Jesus is. Well, the third dying man, what does he say? Verse 43, Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. He says, amen. I tell you the truth. That's translated in the Greek as amen. And it's a very peculiar thing to say at first because usually when scholars would teach, this is amazing, Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's suffering. He's bleeding to death and he's actually suffocating to death on the cross. That's actually how you die when you're being crucified. And with every ounce of breath that he's got left, he's still teaching on the cross. Amazing authority. Amazing leadership and care for this one criminal who the world has already forgotten about. And here's Jesus who's hanging on the cross, and what does he say? He starts out with amen, which is because scholars back in the day, when they would teach, they would have you teach, they would teach, give you all these truths, and allow you to validate the teaching as they go. And at the end, they say, you validated, here's my teaching, amen. And thus you see this uh, throughout the prophecies. The prophets would teach, and they say, thus saith the Lord, or declares the Lord. That's what you see. But here, Jesus starts out with amen. What he's saying is, I'm taking your right to validate. You don't have much time anyways on the cross. I'm taking your right to validate away from you. I'm telling you up front, this is truth. I am the author because I have, and I have authority. And what he's saying is, amen. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And when people hear that, they usually focus on two words. They usually focus on today. And they say, you know, you've probably heard preachers say, today, you can have paradise. Or you hear preachers say, today you can have paradise. But that's actually not Jesus' focus in this text. His operative word here is not today. I mean, the, the man could have lived, you know. If all we, you know, I mean, we know that he died, but the man, maybe he somehow got free. We don't know. Um, uh, or, you know, at the time, as, when Jesus is dead, that's not the focus. You know, paradise I mean, it's an obvious thing that when he says, you'll be with me in paradise, that he would be with him in heaven. But the operative phrase here is, with me. He says, today you will be with me. Remember, the, the, the criminal, the thief, he, he says, Jesus, remember me. You're the non-negotiable. I want to be with you. So Jesus actually answers him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. In John chapter 17, you have this in your calls to worship, the call to worship. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying for all believers. He's praying for the church. 
And what, do you, what, do you, what does he pray? It's very, very particular. It's an amazing prayer. What does he say? Ultimately, actually, I'm just going to read it. John chapter 17, verse, I'm just going to read 20 to 24. <clears throat> you can follow along with me because it is in your call to worship. <clears throat> and what he says here is, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. It's an amazing prayer. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that you that they may be one as we, that's you and I, the Father, that they may be one as you as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you love me. That's an amazing prayer. But listen to this last verse that I want to read, verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. It's this high priestly prayer. What he's saying is, Father, I want you to love them even as you've loved me. That's an amazing prayer. In other words, I'm going to run through this list. It's a long list. We can go on and on with this list. But what he's saying is, I have glory. I want them to have my glory. You don't see him uttering a word of anger. He says, I have peace. I want them to have my peace. I'm loved by you, Father. But I want them to have my love, to have your love. I am the son I have the inheritance. I want them to have inheritance. I have joy in my life. I want them. That's us. I want us to have joy. He says, I have eternity. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. I have eternity. I want them to have eternity. I'm a son. I have sonship. I want them to have sonship. I have perfect relationship with you, my Father. I want them to have perfect relationship with you. Jesus went to the cross so that you could be loved exactly as he was loved. So when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's taking the place of the criminal. And the criminal so that the criminal can have his love. In other words, he was forsaken. Why? So that we could be accepted. He was rejected so that we could be approved. We have a stamp of approval. It's declared. That's called justified. We can be justified. He was cast out so we could be brought in. He was completely disowned as a son. My father, my God, my God. It's the only time in the Bible where Jesus doesn't call his God, his father, God. I mean, God, his father. Why? So that we could be owned by God. Jesus died. And the Apostle Paul says, when he died, we died in him. And so that when he was risen, we are glorified in him as well. It's an amazing, amazing truth. That's good news. That's the gospel. And he says to this criminal, I'm going to die soon. I'm going to die soon. And after my death, I'm going to be glorified. I'm going to die soon. After my death, I'm going to be glorified. Whether or not you die today, you can also have a place with me. He wasn't talking about geography. He wasn't talking about a location. People focus on that, but that's not what he was talking about. He was talking about having a position with Jesus, having a seat with Jesus. 
That's why he can pray here in John 17. I want them to be with me. It's not like that means as soon as he dies and goes to heaven, we all just go up with him. What he's saying is right now we still have a place. We can have that place with Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, we read it in our word of encouragement. We are seated with God in the heavenly realms. What that means is right now, all of us, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you have a seat, a ticket, a seat in heaven next to Jesus. It's reserved for you. No one can take it away from you. No one can take your place. It's reserved for you. It's an amazing, amazing truth. And that's Jesus and his promise. And he sealed it on the cross by dying. And he proved it by rising again. When you look at the cross, what do you see? In Luke chapter 15, you have the parable of the prodigal son. And, uh, you know, the son, you know the story. If you've, if you've been in the church long enough, at least you've heard the story preached many times. But the son eventually returns. He took the inheritance, went away, spent all the money, and now is kind of coming back with his tail between his legs. And what do you expect? You see this father kind of waiting at his house, angry, right? But that's not what you see in Luke 15. You see the father every day standing out in the most undignified way because the father is always at the residence, at the estate. But here's his father outside at the edge, the fringe of his estate waiting every day to see if his son will return. And when his son returns, his son's got the speech kind of planned out and he kind of has a, he's kind of rehearsing it and he starts the speech, but the father ends the speech. He kind of runs out there and he embraces him. And in those days, you would never see the father run. You would never see an esteemed man run. You know, he runs in an undignified way to greet the son. And he clothes him and he cooks and there's banquet and there's celebration. It's an amazing passage. And that's an earthly story. Can you imagine the father in heaven with you? His embrace. Seated with you. Jesus is not trying to be sentimental to this man. I mean, remember, it takes a tremendous amount of work to even utter the words that he was uttering. He was not sentimentalizing his love for this man. He was speaking truth. This isn't fiction. This is non-fiction. This is true, ultimate spiritual reality. He's saying, today, you have ultimate reality with me. And it's offered to all of us, every day. And once you, re- once you reason with God, do business with God by coming to Christ, you have faith, and you have faith in Christ. If you believe that, if you're a Christian, you are utterly saved. And that's got tremendous implications. You can have that now. And it can impact your life now. And I'm just going to run through a couple of ways as to how it can impact you. One, it's not your record then that qualifies you. If you're in Christ, it's not your record that qualifies you. It's Jesus' record that qualifies you. So stop trying to qualify yourself. That gets rid of a lot of frustration in life. It gets rid of a lot, all the defensiveness. You can actually admit you're wrong. You can actually admit you're sinful. You can actually admit specific, particular sins because you're free. The gospel can set you free because you're forgiven. Your record, you're completely qualified, not based on your record right now, not based on your past. Stop mulling over your past. Stop the guilt. Do you realize that when you feel guilt, it's an insult? Because what you're saying is that the power of Christ's death did not affect me. It didn't cover me the way it covers other people who are less bad. That's the gospel. It's good news. There's a great movie back in the day, in the, uh, in the early 90s, uh, directed by Clint Eastwood. He starred in the movie. It was called Unforgiven. It's a Western. If you're not into Westerns, I still encourage you to watch it. Great movie. This movie, Clint Eastwood is this retired um, gangster, I guess, in the Wild West. You know, and uh, he's uh, 
killed a lot of people in his day. He was a drunkard, and all, but he gives it all up because of love. But his wife had passed away, and now he's struggling financially. And an opportunity comes up uh, for him to go and murder these two guys, kill these two guys out of justice in some ways, because what they had done was entered into a brothel and actually sliced up uh, a prostitute, disfigured her. And so the prostitutes got gathered together and got this money to offer up as kind of like a, a payment for anybody who would kill those people to get them back. And so, you know, after decades of not doing anything evil in some ways, he finally gets on his horse and he teams up with this arrogant little guy just starting off. And both the old man with his gun and the young man with his gun, they both ride off. And they succeed. They kill one of the men. And uh, the young man, the arrogant young man, is now sitting beside a tree, and he's drunk. And he just wants to forget what he did because he feels so guilty, and he's shaking. And he tries to justify it. He looks at Clint Eastwood, and he says, well, I guess, I, I guess he had it coming. Remember the line, his famous line. And what does Clint Eastwood say? In his old kind of weathered face, he's looking out, and he said, we all got it coming, kid. Every one of us has a coming. We all are destined, it says in Scripture, we are destined to die. And yet, in Christ, you're going to pay for the record that's given to you. Either it's going to be your record, or it's going to be Jesus' record. If it's your record, we're going to die. We all got a coming, kid. But if it's Jesus' record, what does it mean? Today you will be with him. It says, today you will be with me in paradise. It means you're forgiven. Number two, it means you're forgiven. Look at Jesus. Look at his suffering. Even in his suffering, I mean, you know, he's rationalizing. He's trying to forgive. I mean, it's amazing, right? I mean, he's on the cross and he's suffering like crazy. But what does he do? He looks out and he doesn't say, even though it's true, he doesn't say, Lord, one day I'm just going to grip my teeth because one day it's all going down. That's not what he says. He says, Father, forgive them. Even in the peak of his suffering, he's still working out his place in the Father. So peace, so at peace. In fact, it shows us that he went to the cross willingly and gladly. It means you're remembered. So stop trying to get God's attention. He already knows you. You're remembered. You have a place. And what that means is that no matter how far you've gone, no matter how distant you've been, you can enter in. You can enter in. You have a place. You have a place next to Christ. Friends, how are you going to die? How will you die? It's hard to think about death because we're young and we feel invincible, but how will we die? A famous preacher once said, you know, when you're born, you're the only one crying, and everybody else around you is celebrating and Joyful and laughing and partying. When you're dead, everyone will be crying. Will you be celebrating? Will you be joyful? Will you be thankful? Will you be grateful? Because the love of Jesus, because you are with him, seated with him in the heavenly realms.